Be warned that once you pick up a refreshingly cold drink from McDonald's and people see just how refreshingly cold that drink from McDonald's is, you may create drink envy. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. For a morning brew that really creates a stir, get any size iced coffee, including caramel and French vanilla, for just 99 cents before 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Hey guys, Greg here. If you're struggling with maximizing midlife or any stage of your life, I encourage you to check out my new guide, The No BS Guide to Maximizing Midlife and Getting Back What Matters Most. In the guide, I cover my three core principles that have helped me to become a better man, husband, father, provider, and athlete. I have been able to simplify my life, reduce stress and anxiety, perform at a higher level, earn more, be happier, and have more fun. And I wanted to share not just my why, but my how with all of you. So to get your free copy, go to midlifemail.com forward slash no BS guide, or follow me on Instagram where I hang out at Greg Scheinman. There's a link in my bio there to also download the guide. All right, let's do this. It is the Midlife Mail Podcast. I am your host, Greg Scheinman. Thank you for being with me this week and every week, as always. Really appreciate it. If you like what you hear, go over to iTunes, subscribe to the Midlife Mail Podcast, give us a five-star review, and let's help build this Midlife Mail community into the biggest and best it can possibly be. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to talk to you a little bit about Hyperice, hyperice.com. These guys are the makers of the Hyper Volt, the Viper, uh, the Hypersphere. They've even got a Vibe Tech Pack. I love their products as a 45-year-old guy. Uh, who is training as hard as I possibly can. Recovery has become paramount to me. So go check out their stuff. It has made a huge difference in my life and in my recovery and in my training, and I cannot speak more highly of them. Go to hyperice.com. Also, it is that time of year again. The D10 Decathlon coming up for me November 3rd. This will be year number three that I'll be taking part in the D10. It is an amazing athletic event where we are using our athleticism to raise funds to cure pediatric cancer. This has been going on for more than 10 years. They have raised more than $11 million, and it is a great event taking place in several cities throughout the country. If you feel like you can support me, I would greatly appreciate that. Go over to the d10.com, just put in Greg Scheinman, and you can make a donation, sponsor uh, my participation, even bet whether I'm going to achieve my goals or not. And 100% of this all goes towards curing pediatric cancer. So thank you so much. All right. That is going to bring us to the podcast today. 
my very special guest, Joel Thor Neeb. He is the president of Afterburner. He is their expert leadership speaker. He is a former F-15 mission commander for the United States Air Force. He is also a stage four cancer survivor. He is an American Ninja Warrior. He is an Iron Man. He is a husband. He is a father. Uh, he is quite an incredible human being. So I am really, really honored to have him on the program today. So with that, let's get to it. Joel Thor Neeb on the Midlife Mail podcast. Thank you, man. Appreciate your time. Absolutely, Greg. I'm really excited to be chatting with you. So, so first, I've never really spoken to a superhero before. Do I call you Thor? Do I call you? <laughs> well, I'm certainly not a superhero, but I did get the call sign Thor about, gosh, almost 20 years ago. So I was a fighter pilot in my previous life and the first chapter of my professional career. And uh, the name that I was dubbed from that experience was Thor, just like every fighter pilot gets a call sign. So how did you, how did you get that particular call sign? How did, I don't really know the process of how call signs are not how somebody gets that gets one. So how did that happen? So it's it's interesting. It's uh, you know it's something that is really important to the fighter pilot culture because we want to feel like a family. We want to feel like a fraternity of brothers and sisters that that fly together. So one of the things that we do is after we have enough stories on a person after they've been flying with us for a couple of months in the fighter squadron, we give them a new name and we literally only know them by that name from that point forward. So there are people who I've known for 20 years who, if you asked me to rattle off their first name, I'd be challenged to do it, but I can certainly tell you their call sign right now. And the process to give somebody a call sign is, well, there's really two versions of every call sign story. There's the version that's safe for public consumption and, uh, and we can share with everybody. And then there's the version that's, a little less flattering. It's probably embarrassing for that recipient. And so even though Thor is a, a cool call sign, that version of my story, which is uh, very true, involves some buffoonery on my part. And uh, unfortunately, that version is a two-beer minimum. I don't think we'll have time for that. <laughs> well, also, look, thank, thank you so much for your, for your service uh, and for everything that you've done for our country. I can't even imagine or begin to imagine what all of that has, has involved, but I want to talk to you a little bit more about that. But really, first and foremost, thank you for, for everything uh, you and your boys have done for us. It, it was my privilege, Greg. So was that, tell me a little bit about your background. Did you come from a military family? Um, how did you get, get interested and get involved with the military? So not at all. So, you know, my grandfather was in the military, I think, just like anybody who grew up during the World War II era. He actually went to West Point, and he was a pilot at a time when it was extremely dangerous uh, to be a pilot. So I have a lot of respect for him for doing that. But it, that was all around World War II and our, our country and, and our allies rising up against evil. And, and then after that, it completely had no military whatsoever uh, in my background. So for a good 40 years, Nobody in my extended family was a part of the military. So I was kind of bucking the trend and going in a different direction by doing this. I felt the calling, and I was accepted to the Air Force Academy, and uh, it looked like a good fit for me, and so that's where I ended up. Did you go into the Air Force thinking you were going to become a pilot, uh, or, or how did you choose that branch of the military? Good question. So I got into West Point and the Air Force Academy, which are both great service academies. One's for the Army at West Point, the other one's for the Air Force, of course. 
And uh, at, at that point, what it came down to for me was the Air Force Academy was just a great school. And I, I wish my story was cooler. I wish I could tell you that, like my friends, I had dreamed of being a fighter pilot since I was five years old and had posters on my wall of F-15s. But I just, I really didn't. It was, it was something that I connected with after I got there. And it certainly seemed fun. And I always liked the movie Top Gun, but it, it's not like I, I was waiting for that opportunity my whole life. Look, I like the movie Top Gun. I think obviously millions of people like the movie Top Gun. That could not be more different from actually doing it. What's it like when you first started getting trained and the process of becoming a fighter pilot physically, uh, mentally? How I can't even imagine what that's like. I can't even ride a roller coaster. <laughs> so. The best way I can explain that is at 22 years old, I've just graduated from college. I'm a young, dumb kid who doesn't really you know, know what he wants out of life. And I'm put into this supersonic aircraft. And I, within seven missions, meaning seven sorties, uh, by my, flying with an instructor, I kicked out the door solo. So now I'm flying this airplane all by myself. And I got to go practice maneuvers. And I'm going upside down in this aircraft. And the only thing separating me from about a three-mile fall is a half inch of piece of plexiglass in my seatbelt. And the emotions I was feeling were a combination of terror and exhilaration. Absolute terror that I should not be doing this. This is dangerous and totally foreign to me, but exhilaration that I couldn't believe I was doing it and, and what an incredible experience. And that, that's really been the trend for the rest of my life. I've tried to pursue things that gave me both of those emotions. So how does that, so you go from the training, you become a fighter pilot, What's the difference, or explain if you can a little bit, the difference in training and flying and then also being a part of active military missions? Yeah, great great question, because it, it's more than just the exhilaration of flying upside down by yourself and, and the, the beauty and the art of flying, although there is absolutely that. At some point, you transition to the tactical aspect of employing this as a weapon, and putting your life, life, life on the line in that same process with, uh, you know, seven or eight of your closest friends. And so it, it really is. i got to give the military a lot of credit. They are able to create a system that pulls you through to a place where you couldn't have ever gotten by yourself. You could never have become a fighter pilot on your own accord within 12 months, and yet they put you with a group of people that are going to challenge you to work harder. They put you in a system that's going to give you the right advances at each step along the way so that within that year you finally become somebody who's able to employ this aircraft uh, as a weapon better than just about anybody else on the planet. And then, of course, it's attached to a strong sense of purpose and meaning because it's one thing to be a mercenary and just be skilled and in attacking, it's another thing to associate that with the very clear principles that you agree with and, and freedom, uh, of course, at the top of that list, but not the least of which is, is also having the team of people that you're protecting along the way. Is there one particular mission or event that happened to you in, in an aircraft that you know, that really, I guess, is is the one that stands out or sticks with you the most? So... Not in particular. In other words, I, I wouldn't say that there's one particular mission that, that stands out more than any other. When when we flew, where we were employed most often was on presidential escort missions because my plane does exclusively air-to-air -air engagements. It's called the F-15. It only does the top gun type flying where you're dogfighting against another aircraft. 
you can imagine in the wars of the past two decades, there hasn't been a lot of need to do that. And one, because we've worked ourselves out of a job. We're absolutely unmasked in the sky, 109 kills to zero losses. So other points know, know that if they see us in the sky, to run away as quickly as possible. And so the, in, in both the, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, the F-15 had a very limited presence initially and uh, nothing after that. And then we were tasked with escorting the president around uh, following that experience. Mm-hmm. What, how long did you serve that you were active? 14 years, active duty. And what was the decision or what was involved in the timing to, to leave the military and move on to the next chapter? So I left the military at a time when nobody does it. At, at 14 years, I'm basically a tour and a half away or just six short years away from getting a guaranteed annuity, a guaranteed health care for the rest of my life. If you get to 20 years, you, are, you can retire from the military and basically get taken care of for the rest of your life from a financial perspective and from a, a uh, you know, coverages and uh, benefits perspective along the way. The reason I did that is because it's, it's a little bit more of a longer story, but at about 10 years into my flying experience, I found out I had stage four cancer and that uh, I was really up for the battle of my life. I thought the battle of my life might happen in an airplane, but uh, it ended up happening in a hospital bed. As I was told, I had about a 15% chance to live and uh, didn't really to expect to live about 18 months. Wow. So at that point, you left the, the military. Um, and take, take me through you know, that journey and that experience of fighting and, and battling cancer. I mean, you're a young guy. You're, you're pretty much an invincible guy. Um, both inside and outside the aircraft. How did you deal with that? How did you approach dealing with cancer? It was an absolute punch in the gut. It could not have come out of left field any more than it did. I was in great shape. I was in great health. I was uh, auditioning to be one of the next Thunderbirds. It was in the application process to join the Air Force Thunderbirds like the Blue Angels and go travel around the world doing aerial demonstrations, and so that's the best of the best, the fittest of the fit in the military, and, it, and I looked at the part and then found out that I had this giant tumor growing inside my abdomen, and it spread to other places, hence the stage four piece of it, and it just, it just totally took me out of commission for a month. I was very bitter. I was, uh, you know, all the emotions that you'd expect to have with young kids, one and a three-year-old, and a young wife who I was about to abandon in death. Uh, to to handle all this on our own. Wow, uh, that's that's unbelievable to to deal with. I know we talked a little bit briefly that you know my father had cancer, passed away at forty seven, um, and my younger my brothers and I, who are both younger than I, um, went through that experience of multiple years of him with cancer. Unfortunately, did not did not beat it. Uh, you did go on and, and beat it. Um, I guess, how, you know, was there anything you attribute that to, or what was your approach? Did you apply your military training, your education? Or what was your mental and physical approach to working towards beating the cancer? Or, and, and if there's light, do you attribute it to anything? Yeah, great question. So, you know, I, I get this question a lot, and I'm very active in um, in the cancer fighting world and in having conversations with people that are newly diagnosed 
and they always want to know what's the perfect diet, what's the perfect fitness regimen, how did you survive stage four at, you know, I want to do what you did to be a part of the 15% that lived. And I always hesitate with my answer because, you know, I don't know for, for a fact what I did. And a lot of it could have been luck. But at the end of the day, I'll tell you this. I, I sat in a room, got chemotherapy with a lot of other people. And unfortunately, at the end of that experience, there were people that didn't make it um, through that. And some of those were the most optimistic people that you could ever meet. And they were going to fight it and they were going to beat it. And they put everything behind it and nothing was going to stop them. And yet it just wasn't enough. And, and so you can't will yourself out of a cancer battle, um, which is probably not a surprise to anybody. But I'll tell you this, this was my revelation. The people that I saw that had given up already that would show up to these chemo treatments and were just despondent and they just had no hope, that person almost guaranteed themselves that they, would, they, that they wouldn't win that battle. And that was an eye-opener for me to see that you couldn't will yourself out of the situation, but you could certainly lose hope and, and your body would follow. Let me backtrack just, just a little bit. Um... You said you looked the part, you felt the part, you were in elite level condition, you'd, and only when you did find out you had cancer, it was stage four cancer and a large tumor. How, you feel, was that missed? I mean, I would assume you also get physicals, you know, constantly, and, and I'm asking even, how does that get missed or how does that get found, I guess, for somebody like yourself or anybody? Right. So it's, it was missed, but to the credit of the doctors that I worked with, some of whom are my best friends in the world now, I actually have the, the doctor who initially diagnosed me coming over this weekend for the long weekend to, to hang out with our family. We've got one of our closest uh, friends in the world is this, this group of people, this family now. But if, if you're in the medical community, they say that you're looking for zebras among the horses. And uh, anybody in the medical community will know what that means because they, they teach you that you're going to spend a long time dealing with horses that are just really boring diagnoses. And it's going to be flu over here and, you know, a sprained knee over there. And it's just the same thing over and over again. Once in a while, you're going to see that animal that's totally different to that zebra. And you got to be on your guard waiting for it because you never know when that's going to happen. It's not going to present itself like a zebra until you really run all the tests. I'm the zebra. I'm the one who had the one in a million random weird cancer that nobody expects it to be. So when I show up in great health and I tell them, which I did for about nine months, Hey, I got this weird pain over here. It's like a two on a scale of one to 10. It happens when I'm pulling G's in the aircraft, I can just kind of feel something funky. And they said what they should have said, which is you're working out too hard. Uh, you know, d d slow down and uh, watch what you're eating. All the things that make sense when you're dealing with horses, but I was a zebra and it took them a while to identify that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned at the time also that you were married and you had young young children. Um, how long how long had you been married at the time? So this occurred in 2010. I was married uh, in 2004, so about six years. And you also not only have had to deal with, with your own cancer journey, um, but with one of your children as well. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, so, and this is the part that is almost just unbelievable to consider, but at the exact same time, we were monitoring this spot on my son's lung. So I said I had a one- and three-year-old. In 2009 time frame, about halfway through the year, we, we discovered, incidentally, this spot on my, my three-year-old's lung. They did an x-ray to look at his intestines because he had a tummy ache, you know, just one of those benign problems that kids always have, and they were looking at making sure he didn't have a blockage. It was just a a uh, really conservative approach to it, and they happened to catch his lungs in this x-ray 
and they saw this spot on there that they really didn't like. And so we were monitoring that before we knew anything about my cancer. We spent months monitoring my son, and that was our big hand-wringing concern that he had something to worry about. And, you know, unbelievably, at the same time, we find out that I have this tumor, and then we, I literally walk out of that doctor's office to meet my wife who's leaving the, the, the doctor's office from across the hall in this hospital to tell me that the tumor has grown in my son's chest. And so we were both under the knife. We need to remove, um, you know, 10 inches of intestines and all sorts of other stuff, and, and for him to have most of his left lung removed uh, within about three weeks of each other. Wow. Um, and I have two boys and just thinking about this um, and hearing it. And as I said, I haven't watched and, and been around my father when he had, when he was going through his treatments and, and dealing with cancer. Um, it's heartbreaking and it's overwhelming to imagine what that, what that must be like, both for you uh, dealing with it yourself and as a father, but also for the rest of your family and, and your wife. Um, how, I mean, how did you guys deal with that um, spiritually, emotionally, physically? Are you particularly religious people? I mean, what was what, what was going through your heads? Yeah, so we, we've always been religious. We've always been, you know, a Christian family. But if we're being honest about it, it was uh, it was going through the motions, mostly because you just, you're invincible. You're, I was a fighter pilot. We had young kids. We had all of our dreams coming true. We were living the idyllic life. And so for us to, you know, we were very thankful for that. And so in the context of, of our gratitude, we were religious. But we really hadn't thought about this in terms of that life is going to come to an end, that there's something more important than the existence that we're seeing on a day-to-day basis. And now we're faced with that in a very real way. Uh, we're faced with the fact that I'll probably be gone within the next year and a half, and, and possibly my son as well. And so it made, uh, it made us come heart to heart and face-to-face with with our religion in a way we hadn't before. And I, I'm, you know, I'm very happy to say that it strengthened my relationship with God and, and my walk uh, in that aspect as well. And that was not something I fell back on as a really important, um, uh, you know, foundation from that point forward when it kept. And then the other thing I'll – go ahead. No, I, I, go on. Go ahead. I was going to say, you know, the other piece of it that I, I just have to give so much credit to my wife, uh, I, I always joke that she was – she was the type of person before this that uh, would, would, you know, have a fit and be upset if her purse spilled or, you know, some of these, you know, really benign things that happen to you. And here she is now taking care of her husband in the ICU who's had major, major surgery, walking across the hall in a couple of weeks and taking care of her son who can't even take painkillers because all they give you when you're a kid is, is Motrin. They don't give you the, the uh, you know, the, the good stuff so that you can actually not feel the pain. Uh, they, they, so he's dealing with this massive surgery and in so much pain, and she was just a rock. She stepped up in, in ways that I never would have guessed in the past. And it just goes to show you what we're capable of and how we can rise to the occasion on these circumstances. i got to give her all the credit in the world for just, you know, even being stronger than me in this circumstance. And, and you speak about it, you articulate it so with, with so much positivity and so much passion. How are you and your son now? Everything okay? Yeah, we are both 100% fine. He's, you know, minus most of his lung, uh, and I'm minus in parts, and I have definitely some um, residual uh, scars, both physically and emotionally, from an experience like that, as you can imagine. But given all of that stress, one of the things that really uh, that, that I took away from this experience and probably what the life-changing thing for me 
that we, we don't get to decide whether or not we carry those scars. We just do. I can't decide not to have the pain and the scars physically and the scars emotionally from, from all of that trauma. And I had nightmares about it and everything you could expect. And so is my son and so is my wife. But the amazing thing from this that I identified was that there's also another option and that's post-traumatic growth that you can experience. And it's a decision that you get to make that though I have to bear the scars, there's an opportunity here for me to adjust my life and adjust my outlook based off of that and use it as a stepping stone to something better. Hey guys, super excited to have teamed up with Roan and proud to be part of such a great company and supported by such tremendous individuals. Roan's mission is to inspire one another in the pursuit of progress. Roan is clothing made for men and simply put, Roan works for me, my family, and my lifestyle. They produce clothing that brings together a seamless integration of fit, form, and function. Clothing made for everything from the gym to the office. I am in the joggers constantly. Love those. I am in the gym wearing their clothing. The Mako shorts on point. Their socks, fantastic. When I am wearing a shirt, the rain, best out there. This is clothing that inspires men to live healthy, strong, and free. I feel strong. I feel confident. I feel stylish when I put it on. It is literally eliminated decision-making from my style. Boom. I go in there. I have exactly what I need. I put it on. I feel great. Day made. Clothing that helps me move forever forward. To learn more, support, and pick up some great gear from Roan and all of the other Midlife Mail brand partners, go to midlifemail.com forward slash partners. Talk to me a little bit more about that because I know that's, that's what you've, you've done. You kind of threw yourself into giving back um, and, and into service and starting a youth outreach program um, that I've read about. You got yourself back into... I mean, ultra competitive athletics in, in Ironmans and then talk even about Ninja Warrior. Talk to me about that kind of passion for, for giving back and and where where you went from that experience and how you've turned it into such a positive. I, I think it best is captured on and the turning point for me to tell you the quick story of, of how this all played out and, and really where my my approach and my outlook changed because for the first 30 days after my cancer diagnosis and after my son's surgery, I was not in a good place. And I was not waking up with a spring in my step and, and being positive at all. I was really mad and I was bitter and I was upset with God. And it all came to a head when I was driving out to this hospital in Houston. And uh, the hospital I fought to get into is called MD Anderson. They got the best doctors there in the world. The military didn't want to send me there at first because it's expensive and they figured they could treat it themselves. But I talked them into me because it's the only place where I could stand a chance. And so it should have been a good thing. I should have been driving out there and, and thinking with a sigh of relief, well, at least I'm getting the best treatment. But I didn't feel that. I was very anxious as I'm driving over there, and I'm super uncomfortable. I couldn't put my finger on why during this three-hour drive I just had this sick feeling in my stomach. And then my wife dropped me off at the, at the front of the hospital, and I get out, and I'm walking in there, and I'm looking up at this enormous hospital in the middle of downtown Houston, windows that just go up forever, and I realize why I'm so anxious. As I'm looking up at these windows, I realize that I'm going to die in one of those windows. One of those rooms, I'm going to take my last breath, 
and it's going to happen soon, and I am voluntarily entering the building that I'm going to die as as a 33-year-old or 34-year-old. And that was just it. It, it. The whole weight of my experience in the past six weeks was just on top of me like I hadn't experienced before, and I just stopped. And I remember looking up and closing my eyes, and the tears are streaming down my face, and, and I'm just angry. And, I, and I'm saying, you know, God, why am I going through this? I've done everything right. My son has just had most of his lung removed. I've got stage four cancer. Why am I dealing with all this? It's not fair. Take this away from me. And when I open my eyes, I'm watching people going in and out of the hospital, and I, and I make eye contact, contact immediately uh, with this girl. And she's looking right at me. And she's got really, really pretty, beautiful blue eyes. I'll never forget her blue eyes. And she's staring at me as she's being wheeled into the hospital because she has, uh, you know, white as a sheet skin. She's got a bald head. She's got a surgical mask over her mouth, and she's about 12 years old, and she's staring at me. And in that moment, we just have this connection. As, she, as I watch her being wheeled in, for whatever reason, we, our eyes are locked, and I can tell that she's afraid. And in that one second, it flipped the script in my mind. I went from feeling sorry for myself saying, oh my gosh, I've got the most blessed life ever. I'm 33 years old. I'm doing what everybody dreams of doing. I'm a fighter pilot. I've got this beautiful family. And that little girl will not live to be a teenager. God, please protect her. I'm sorry for being so selfish. And it was amazing. It was amazing to me that in, in that moment, my entire outlook flipped and my entire concern was for this other person and off of myself, and I realized that, you know, I'm going I'm to decide to not feel sorry for myself. Whatever takes place, I'll probably die. But whatever takes place from this point forward, I've been incredibly blessed. I have a ton to be grateful for, and I'm not going to feel sorry for myself. And I made that decision walking into that hospital that day, and that was a turning point for me towards, towards, towards positivity. It made me realize that I had a choice, and if in a second I could go from the worst moment of my life to feeling such empathy for this other person and wanting to help them, that it was a decision I could make and I could, I could do again and again. Amazing. And as you're talking and, and telling me this story, I'm sitting here looking out the window um, of my office in Houston, staring at the medical center uh, where MD Anderson is. Down there. Wow. Wow. That's goosebumps. Yeah, the, it was goosebumps listening to you uh, and, and looking at this from here, being so close to MD Anderson um, and what they've done for so many. And it's mindset. about is that, that change in mindset. Um, so from that point, what were the steps that you took from, from beating the cancer, the, the subsequent steps that you took to start living the rest of your life, the next, the next steps? How did, you, how did you start getting yourself back into shape? How did you start um, thinking about the next phase of, of your career and and your life? And a little bit of, because it's, it's an identity shift, right? From being, you know, the, the invincible fighter pilot to now you, you do have to do something else. I, I went from spending, you know, two hours a day in the gym and being on the top of my game in fitness to my fitness really being walks around the kitchen island. And, uh, and with my son in tow, we were both, you know, had just gone under the knife. And one of the things they have you do is, is walk to kind of get your blood flowing and, 
and things moving. And that was the extent of my workouts. And that was that way for a couple months. And then when you start feeling like you're ready to exercise again because the surgery's healed, that's about the time that they zap you with chemotherapy and they're, they're putting poison in your body. I mean, it's, it's the equivalent of starting a fire in your house to kill a rat. You, you want to, you know, make sure that you're, you're not damaging enough of your house, but at the same time, you want to get rid of that rat. And so I'm, I'm poisoning myself slowly with chemotherapy, and the last thing I want to do is go work out. But since I committed myself to this new outlook and to being a part of the fight and, and uh, to, you know, not feeling sorry for myself, working out is exactly what I did. And it was horrific the first time. When I went out to, for the first run, I, I was in Texas in San Antonio, and it was ridiculously hot, and I made it about two blocks and, uh, and then came back in dripping and sweat and, and just feeling miserable. But it was the start of this journey and getting back. And uh, it started with that, that first step outside the house and committing to it. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing now. Um, Afterburner is, is your company. Um, what is Afterburner and what, are you, and what do you guys do? So Afterburner is amazing. It's, it's, it is a company that I'm one of the partners and owners of now, but it's been around for 22 years. So it was, it was going strong well before I joined six and a half years ago. But uh, the premise is this. They, they use the concepts that made me a fighter pilot when I was 22 years old. In other words, molded the clay and took me through this journey and pulled me into a place that I never could have gotten to on my own and use the same principles behind the scenes of the system that created that, and we go into corporations, and we help them to support their billion-dollar initiatives. I was on a phone call this morning with the uh, – we're, we're building out a billion-dollar partnership between two CEOs, and they both already have uh, companies that have you know, $55 million billion in, in market cap today. If I said their names, you'd recognize them. And uh, we use the same principles that we use to build strategy with 25 allied countries when I was in the military, those same principles apply very well to building strategy with corporations, and we've had great success leading uh, teams uh, to be more effective and accelerate their progress. So that's the premise of Afterburner, and, and I was so impressed with what the military and, and this system did for me at 22. Then when I heard about this company, it was a no-brainer. I knew this was this – was, I always figured if you could bottle what the military had done and, and how it creates elite teams and you could sell that, you could do anything you wanted to in the, in the corporate world, and Afterburner's proven that. Mm-hmm. So how did you take it from, I guess, yourself um, as, as an individual and go from your experiences being on the, I guess, on the training side and the receiving side and applying what you've learned to moving over to the teaching side, right, the consulting or the, or the teaching side? Um, is it, is it speak, is it, that's a different role, right? You know, you're flipping from the student to the teacher and what's that process? I guess, how does Afterburner train you guys or how do you switch sides? So one of the best parts about the military is that we are exceptional at training and it makes sense if you look at what we're able to accomplish. So if you go to, uh, and look at an aircraft carrier, for example, that is, that operates like a well-oiled machine. You've got thousands of people in one place that are launching aircraft with just seconds of separation between them. You have many people operating with just visual signals because you can't hear each other to ensure that everything's happening safely, everything's happening at a, a strong pace. And the, the amazing part here is that the average age on an aircraft carrier is about 19 years old. So we're taking kids who were in English class in high school, uh, you know, a couple months ago, and we're turning them into cogs in a machine that are operating at efficiency levels that companies would love to have. 
And so if you, if you unpeel that a bit and you take a look at why that takes place, you'll see that there's very specific things that they do within training that allow them to succeed. And we have to get good at articulating those in the military because you very quickly go from student to teacher. Because as you can imagine, if the 19-year-old is the student, then we, the 21-year-old is the teacher. And so I was an instructor at, you know, I, I learned to fly at 22 years old. I was an instructor at 23 and a half years old, which, uh, which is very time to go from driving cars to breaking the, the sound barrier in an airplane all across the, the world and teaching others how to do it. But the system is such that it, it, it breaks it down in ways that allows you to teach it. What's a typical day for you like now? Is there a, do you have a morning routine, a daily routine? What, what's Thor's day like? Very much uh, regimented in my morning routine. And I think I, I borrow that from some of, a lot of the great mentors and leaders that I know. I, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with uh, Pat Gelsinger, the CEO of VMware, over the summer. And that's a $6 billion market cap tech company, which is just cutting edge as it can be. And it, one of the things I learned from watching him over the past couple of years is that uh, the first three hours of your day is where you win the day. And when I talk to the leaders behind the scenes that are the most successful, they're not waking up at 6.30 and getting into the meeting at, at 7.30 uh, and looking fresh and ready to go. They're really up at 4.30. They're at the gym uh, taking care of their bodies first. They're doing meditative time, whether that's getting into the Bible or doing uh, with the app headcase or whatever. They, you know, doing something that allows you to be focused on, uh, on nothing else and remove the noise from the rest of your world and, and focus on something spiritual for a while. And just, just having that, that set myself up for success, those early wins before the rest of the world is even up, that are the launch pad for great things as a team for the rest of the day. So I'll pause there. That's, that's really what my regimented first couple hours look like. And the rest of the day is, you know, it's all over the place depending on the week. So you travel a lot for, for work now. Are you, yep. Do you fly yourself? <laughs> on occasion we do and my ceo would love it if we'd fly ourselves more because he just thinks that's that it would be you know just a really cool story and great and fun to do but you know what i've overflown my passion for flying so that's that's the equivalent of saying you know would you would you rather rent a car or just take taxis when you get to vegas and i you know most of us would say if i give if i just get the choice i'm gonna take a taxi the entire time that's how i feel about flying i love it i'll still take the controls and and, you know, move it around a little bit and have a good time in the plane. But And we have a company plane to do that. But uh, but at the end of the day, I'm going to let somebody else fly if, they, if they're more excited about it. Gotcha. So <laughs> you decided, I guess you decided, or, or you tried out for American Ninja Warrior. And and you did it. Where Where did that come from? What made you do that? So once again, that goes back to my pursuit of things that both terrify me and exhilarate me. And so whether that's uh, doing that in an airplane at 22 years old or leaving the, uh, the military and jumping into the corporate world where I had no business, you know, talking to corporate leaders initially and I had to, to learn how to do that or doing an Ironman or doing Ninja Warrior, it's, I'm always looking for something that's outside of my comfort zone because I know that n nothing worth pursuing is already inside my comfort zone. The growth is going to take, take place outside of that. And so for Ninja Warrior, that absolutely was firmly planted outside my comfort zone. I can always bench press a lot and I can run well, but in terms of gymnastic skills and being able to throw my body around, which is almost 200 pounds, from bar to bar, no way. And I would go to these training sessions and when, when I was getting ready for Ninja Warrior and, 
I do with these kids that are 20 years old and they were gymnasts their whole lives and they're just flipping around and doing these amazing things and they look like nothing. I mean, they're super skinny. They, you know, they probably look at the, like the, uh, the stereotypical soccer player that is, is just really fit, but not much muscle on them. And they're just doing amazing things. And so I had to totally transform my, my body to compete on this and, uh, and to be ready and to be accepted into the competition. And what made you choose that? Was it something you're just sitting around watching on TV saying, that's what I, that's what I want to do. I want, I want to try that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I always loved the show. I, and even when I was going through chemo treatments, I'll never forget. I watched Ninja warrior on back then. It was on G4, the channel. And uh, my son and I just loved it. And so it was a really nice bookend to the story that had started with cancer uh, and to be able to put the exclamation point on this entire cancer experience that we had for what we watched during recovery as the, you know, the, the, the extent of what we could do at that point was walking around the kitchen to finally find myself on TV and, and competing at, at this level was, was a dream come true to be able to, to tell that story. What's your perspective on how you, how you're living right now with all of your experiences? Uh, do you pay particular attention to your your diet or your nutrition, or you say I'm I'm eating what I want to eat, you know, because I've gone through everything? Or you know, what's what's your perspective, I guess, on on how you're living, risks that you take, um, and just having been through everything you have? For what, what would you say to other guys out there? Yeah, I, I do pay attention to it. You know, there's there's a school of thought where you'd wonder, being so close to death and basically being 18 months away from it, wouldn't you just throw caution to the wind and now go, you know, just be a you know hedonistic person and, and just do whatever the heck you wanted because life is short and, and why bother? And that's the opposite of the takeaway that I had personally. I, I really subscribe to, I think it was Les Brown that said that if you do what is hard, your life will be easy. If you do what is easy, your life will be hard. And I, I believe that, you know, I'm not, I'm not so disciplined about my eating that you're never going to see a cookie in my hand, but I want to do what's hard. I want to be disciplined about it so that I can have access to the really cool, fun things like Ninja Warrior and Iron Man and climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, the fun parts of life that to me are worth a lot more in the experience than the taste of that cake uh, or, you know, having uh, alcohol or whatever else that you could throw in there. And trust me, I'm not, I'm not so disciplined that you would that you would see that you wouldn't ever see me with a beer in my hand. But at the end of the day, I care more about having experiences that matter rather than an immediate uh, sugar rush. Sure. What type of father are you? Intense. So you know, I'm a, I'm a fast talker in this conversation. I, I'm very specific about uh, what I want out of life. And so if you're talking to my kiddos right now, they'd say. Dad's a little exhausting. That you know, we 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 have uh, we have very specific physical activity that we go through. My kids have heard a thousand times, "Work hard, play hard," because that's uh, that's my motto. But at the end of the day, they would also say that we have a really close relationship, and that I'm invested in their long-term future. And we have many conversations about that, about delaying gratification, uh, so that you can have the really cool things out of life. There are some there are some instant gratification things that we could go get right now. But if we work a little bit harder, not a lot harder, a little bit harder, there's an opportunity for something even better. And that's, that's the theme that I want my kids to be aware of and that, that we have a lot of conversations about uh, at our house. Uh, are you a reader? I know you commented on a book post I had put up the, the other day. Um, what do you do on your, on your own time? Are you a reader? Do you meditate? Are you going out for runs? What's your thing? 
I'm a voracious reader. I read at least a book a week, um, and that's because I, you know, I'm a lifetime learner. And uh, one of the things I took away from my experience as I transitioned from being a fighter pilot to the corporate world was how little I knew about the corporate world and how large the gap was between my military experience and the corporate one. And if ever I was going to be credible and really earn the opportunity to go sit down with these CEOs and guide them, I needed to first be able to speak their language and understand it deeply, better than they did even, and that requires me to be in the books uh, constantly. But I love it. It's not a chore. It's, you know, I, I love the fact that every time I'm reading, I'm honing, honing my game. I'm a growth state mentality person, not fixed state, which means I'm always looking to uh, take my game up to another level and compete at a, at a higher plane. What's next? What are the what are the goals you have? What are you working on and and working towards right now? So I've had the, the great pleasure of doing some amazing things personally um, for my physical goals with the with the Ironman first and Ninja Warrior. I did a physique competition in there as well, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. And now what I'm focusing on is taking the spotlight off of me and helping others to to realize some of those goals. So as a company at Afterburner, we are sponsoring uh, some obstacle course events. We are sponsoring fitness competitions and, and really looking to, to scale the experiences that I've been fortunate to be a part of to a group of people and take, take a team on a journey along the way. It's great. Um, with that, is it a conscious move into more of health and wellness? Is it a strategic Kind of initiative of this kind of combination it sounds like of, of passion between kind of the personal and, and the professional is that is that right it's it's a holistic approach at the end of the day greg and here's what i mean by that if you were to have this entire conversation about how to make your sales team better i would talk with just as much passion about that corporate transformation that you're looking to make and the reason is because there is no one area that i want to completely define my life and just like the CEOs and the leaders that I most admire, they, you know, they're great, they're great corporate leaders. But at the same time, they're up between the hours of four and six and honing their bodies as well. And 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 so I, I also know people who are burning themselves out and who are terribly out of shape at 45 years old because they've only focused on the corporate part. So health and wellness is one critical piece to the overall puzzle that uh, that I'm looking to create for just an incredible life. Now that I've gotten a second chance. Yep, and I, I think that's that's a huge huge point right there. That one of the things I tend to talk about, or that comes up a lot with almost everybody, guys that I'm talking about, particularly as, as we're in this midlife male category, is balance. What you've just touched on the finding the balance in in all areas of your life, family and finance and fitness and health, um, and trying to figure out how to how to make that second half or that next phase of your life the best that it can be and certainly, you know, even better than the first and use and apply these lessons and experiences that, that we've had. Uh, if there was one thing, or it could be a couple of things, um, that you could, piece of advice or, or things that you would want to convey to, to guys that are in that stage or in our stage of life, if I was bringing you into to consult or to talk to me or, or a group of people, what are the key things that either we're missing or as guys or that you've seen or that, that we should be thinking about a little bit more? 
So I would I challenge the word balance, and because balance to me implies that we are conceding something. In other words, if I'm going to balance things out at zero sum, I got to take away a little bit from my corporate pursuits to add a little bit to my family, take a little bit away from my fitness one day to add a little bit to my my academic development, my intellectual development, and I don't see it as balance. I see it as harmony. And here's where the difference is from my perspective. It's it's not that we're giving anything up. It's that we are putting things in the right category and adding the right pieces together so that one plus one doesn't equal two. One plus one actually equals three. Harmony is when notes are played together and they sound better than the individual notes ever could. And I believe when you strike that right harmony in your life, it's not that you're giving anything up. It's that you're creating and opening the door to incredible new opportunities that would never exist have existed if you didn't have um, if you didn't prioritize those things uh, as, as they needed to be. As opposed to that leader that I know that I'm picturing him right now that's out of shape, that's driving a $2 billion business and is a great guy, but he's burned out and he does not have that harmony. And he's going to be able to do this for maybe five more years before he has a heart attack or dies. And that's, you know, that, that's just it afterwards. So it's balance is giving up, harmony is getting more. And, and that's what I would give to folks that are listening, that it's, it's about striking that harmony with your life, between your family, between um, your rest. I never get less than eight hours of sleep a night. It's just something I took away from being a fighter pilot, from your intellectual development, from your well-being and fitness. Those are the, the, those are the things to focus on, and you use spirituality as your foundation, and uh, you're going to accomplish some amazing things. I love that. Uh, and the shift now to, to bringing that word to the forefront of harmony versus balance um, that's why you do what you do right now because it make it makes a lot of sense and it's an immediate click and, and I take that to heart. I want to thank you for your time. I really really enjoyed this um, and it was looking forward to it and in every area and every aspect completely over delivered. So Joel Thor Neve, thank you so much for giving me your time on a Friday afternoon. Uh, just let me in to, to learn a little bit more about you and, and into your life and your world. And I think it's great, great stuff. And I wish you and your family all of the best. And thanks for doing this for, for everybody out there. My pleasure, Greg. And I'm a huge fan of what you're doing for the community as well. One of my favorite quotes is that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation from Thoreau. And I think that's true. I think a lot of people are struggling out there. They're struggling to find that harmony. They're struggling to find that sense of purpose at our age and uh, you're the beacon in the storm that's allowing that to take place with some great examples and appreciate that outreach thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the midlife mail podcast please leave us that five star rating that positive review if you want to reach out to me greg at midlifemail.com let me know what you think comments questions i should ask men we should have on the show Subscribe to the newsletter at gregsheinman.com. And let's go. I'll see you next week.